Hi, and welcome to Troublesome Turbs, the podcast that keeps interpreters up at night. Today, we have a very special guest, and I am here with a very special co-host who's actually very excited for today's topic. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Alex. Uh, good to be here again. Um, yeah, I am super excited about tonight's episode because it's one of my favorite topics from uh, college. It's one of my favorite things to talk about when I'm sitting down with a nice pint uh, pre-pandemic, of course, uh, in, uh, in a pub. And uh, I don't know, I find a victim to talk to about this. And tonight, our victim and very special guest is Kate Hamilton. Hi, how are you doing? So nice to have you. I'm super excited. I think this is the first time we've actually introduced one of our podcast guests as she's the victim. <laughs> this is our victim for tonight. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Sarah was quite excited to yes, talk yes. to you. <laughs> you have to say willing victim. Yes. I'm very glad to see you. That is very true. Yes. yes. So Kate, you're coming to us from England, is that right? That's right. Yes. So I live in Cheltenham and um, I'm just studying at Oxford University at the minute. So I'm from England and um, I've lived in this kind of area as well as in Scotland. So yeah, I'm back near where I grew up now in the middle in the centre. Jonathan would love yeah. to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I am a languages teacher and um, when I graduated, I went and became a secondary French and English teacher. And that's what I did, sort of my early career. And then um, I got married, I had children and then I realised, and it sounds a bit silly because I was a languages teacher, but when I actually had children, I realised that they have this incredible ability to learn languages. You know, as soon as I had a baby in my arms and I was one of those new parents who hadn't really held a baby before, I didn't know much about them, but I realized he was communicating with me straight away and it was fascinating. And lots of people asked if I was going to speak to him in French um, because I, you know, I could, I could, I could have brought him up um, with a mixture of French and English or even if, whether I would just speak French to him. And I really thought about that. So all of those kind of questions became really interesting to me. So I got more and more interested in how children learn languages, which ironically I hadn't thought of, even though I was teaching um, secondary French. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not something that was really in my teacher training either. You know, um, there was a kind of a bizarre separation between teaching second languages and how people learn languages from birth. You know, there, there wasn't really much kind of connection, um, which I'm kind of embarrassed to admit now. <laughs> But that's how it was. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's my background. And then when I had the children, I set up a company where we teach languages to young children. It's called Babel Babies. And um, it's just... <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's, really, it's really, really fun. And so basically the idea is that um, we're just having loads of fun and we sing songs and we do stories and things, but in lots of different languages. So it's not one language at a time. It's like a multilingual singing group. And we go on a little world tour and we pick up songs. Do you know the wheels on the bus? And like twink mm -hmm. Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and Row 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 the Boat. So like some classic, classic children's songs. But we do them in French and Spanish and German and Italian, but also Japanese, Arabic, Russian and Norwegian and Welsh. So we've got quite a big quite a big mix. I was gonna say you cover you cover quite a bit there. Yeah. So I'm sure we're going to get into that later, but just out of curiosity, is that just to, to kind of prime the kids to like be more open for different languages, kind of raise awareness at an early age of, hey, there's a lot of stuff going on out there that you don't know about yet? Yeah, so um, the person I set Babel Babies up with was at university with me. So I studied English and French and Ruth Ahmad Zykemp, who's a, she's now a translator as well. She did Russian and German and she subsequently learned Arabic. And I had learned Italian oh, wow. and Portuguese. 
after university. So before, like when we started, um, and we had babies at the same time, this was the reason the conversation kind of came up. Um, I said, oh, are you going to speak German to her to her baby? And she wanted to know if I was going to speak French. And so we were kind of, you know, tussling with those ideas. And actually, we just really wanted to introduce the boys to all the languages because we love languages. Words are great. Mm. Um, and we were excited about um, passing the passion on. It wasn't so much like, can I make my baby bilingual? It was more just, can I make them excited about languages mm-hmm. and exploring the world and, and learning and um, meeting new people and having a go. Because I think, I don't know how it is for you because you're, you know, um, obviously um, from mainland Europe, from Germany and in Britain, there's a real sort of fear, I think, of learning languages and people just don't start necessarily at all from a good, from, from a good place. It's not, you know, we speak English and it's difficult to kind of take the first steps, I think. Anytime somebody has English as a first language, it's it's kind of tricky to jump into that let's learn a language situation because, you know, everybody speaks English. So the the you really have to want to learn another language because you, chances are you don't need to learn another language. So I think it's a really smart move that you wanted to kind of pass on the passion to the kids because that's kind of the, the most important thing if... If you're, I don't know, in the States, in, in the UK, wherever you may be. Yeah, I think that's a real, it is a real problem because, you know, like you say, everybody does seem to speak English and it's the lingua franca. Like if I went to um, Sweden and I wanted to talk to people, we'd probably meet, you know, um, other people who were also trying to speak English as the, you know, the language to, you know, do transactions and things. And I feel like um, then growing up on the mainland is more, um, at least for me, I traveled a lot with my family, um, always like four times a year within the European continent and sometimes of course the German speaking countries, but the majority of the countries we travel to, like nobody spoke German, right? So you had to find a way to communicate and it wasn't even English most of the time either. It was the same for me. Like we we were lucky and we went on holiday to mainland Europe and spent lots of time in France and um just, you know, it, it was a real thing for me. I really wanted to learn languages, but I think, you know, um it's 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 tricky if you've come through school and you don't necessarily feel that excited about the curriculum that you've been, you know, given a little bit of French, maybe a little bit of German, perhaps a bit of Spanish in, in secondary school, but um, languages are, are so much fun. I even find that tricky here. I mean, I, I think language learning in, uh, in school is, it's often not taught that well. I mean, and I'm, I love languages and obviously I learned most of them also at school, at least the base and then built on it later. But a lot of the time, the kind of secondary um, school kind of language learning is because it's so much about rules. Yeah. You feel like, oh, I have to learn all these vocabularies, like, and then it, all these words and then all these this grammar is just a bunch of rules and it's boring. You know, you don't really see the fun and what it gives you. And if, when you really go to a country and connect with people that later outcome that you get. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a real shame because um, in, in some of it, I only realized in university, I, I think I said this before on the podcast, but uh, one of my uh, linguistics teachers, she once asked us in, um, in class, um, what, what is grammar? And everyone was like, oh, it's a bunch of rules, blah. And she was like, no, it's the way, the way humans make sense of the world. <laughs> so it's like we describe relationships between things. That is grammar. That we have like an understanding of this grammar. We, but we associate it just with this, these rigid rules you have to learn. But really, that's, that's just the 
byproduct of it. Yeah. That's a nice way of looking at yeah, it. Yeah, it's like if you see a bird flying from a tree to a house, you go like, oh, this thing, you know, goes from here to there. And you have to find a way to explain these relationships between things, right? So that's the most basic way of thinking it. Of course, about it, of course, I know it gets more complex, but um, I love that, that it put, like it really, it's something so simple, just opened my mind to this. I think it's a really interesting topic. Grammar gets people's, um, you know, heckles up, as we say. <laughs> so, you know, it can be a bit of a love-hate relationship. Whereas actually, it is a really, really fascinating subject. And I think it's a bit of a kind of, um, it's a red herring, really, to think of it as rules. Because grammar rules, in inverted commas, they just describe what people do. So it's what people do with language that is the the thing that is interesting, right? Yeah. You know, it's language, language, as one of my podcast guests, uh, Michael Rosen said, language is always language in use. It doesn't exist outside of people use. It doesn't exist without people using it. So you're, you're looking at what people actually do with language and it's very active and it's very exciting and dynamic. But if you kind of go into a very abstract um, kind of naming of parts type of grammar quite early on, you're, you know, it feels like language is something that is done to you rather than you being in control then. So I think maybe, you know, if you, if you can put children and also with Babel Babies, we're trying to give parents that confidence as well to be in the driving seat and to kind of, you know, enjoy being in control of language. Like, where are you going to with it rather than, you know, trying to learn abstract rules, which doesn't feel very connected um, to what you actually want to you know, what do you actually want to do with language? Language is cool. I love language. This is the main, the main thing. <laughs> you need to know about me. We should do a quick bingo. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it could be a drinking game. Every time you hear the word language, <laughs> you do a shot. Um. Exactly. <laughs> Please only listen to this episode on a Friday evening. No, um, but I love what you said about, you know, it's always that the language lives. And uh, here in Germany, for example, for many years now, people have had debates about, you know, the Anglicisms and Americanisms that come into the German language. And uh, mm, there's a lot of like, ah, it's yeah. ruining the German language, blah, blah, blah. And actually, the people that I found most relaxed about this were all the linguists, like the proper professors at the university that teach linguistics, because they're like, yeah, this is happening to languages because language lives, you know. Duh. <laughs> so they were mm, not so, mm. you would expect. Like those ones might be the ones who most tightly grab onto language, but they were like the most chill about it because they're like, well, this happened before and this is a part of life and language lives and this is just what people do. We all communicate and that's, out. that's the goal. Absolutely. In English, um, if you go back, say, 400 years, um, English was just a bit of a, a, I would say, useless language if you weren't in England. You know, you couldn't go past kind of Dover as... Um, someone I was talking to on the Language Revolution podcast, John Gallagher, he's um, an early modern historian and he's looked at language education and he's got this fantastic quote from a translator and language teacher from like 1578, I think. So John Florio said, English will serve you really well if you're in England, but if you go past Dover, you know, it's worth nothing <laughs> because <laughs> nobody spoke English outside. And then there was this real creative, exciting period where English borrowed loads and loads of words from Italian and French and Latin and obviously it already had Germanic roots. Um, and people were quite anxious that English was borrowing too many words and that it was just this mongrel language that wasn't really anything because it borrowed so much from other languages. I always think of it as kind of Norwegian and German and French and Latin all standing on top of each other with a raincoat on. 
pretending. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've seen a comic strip like that before. Yeah, that is pretending so to funny. be a grown-up language. You know, like we really are a language. But but I think that's almost fair to say, like about many languages, because like maybe not. I was going to say every language, but my because I'm not confident in saying every. I want to say about most languages or many languages. It's like in in German as well. You, we've had the influence of the uh, um, Latin language a long time ago, of course, and French, uh, English, lots of English now, and probably more small ones in between. And now, of course, through um, uh, immigration as well there's more languages coming in again and so and but this is something that's also so great about languages right because you can always see the influences of the times you see what happened in history also through the development of language because it's again it's people coming into contact with each other exactly it's people that's the thing is language doesn't exist without people and so you know people come into contact with each other and they need to trade they need to you know make friends and have you know interesting conversations and so if there isn't a word in language a but language b has got it well obviously you would just you know the, the main goal is the conversation right it's the you know the kind of talking to each other and you know it, it nobody's really thinking strict boundaries must exist in this conversation exactly <laughs> my language and your language exactly. because really you know if you want to have a nice conversation you're trying to you know just keep the flow going aren't you so yeah um right yeah yeah I think some of the anxiety about word borrowing is, you know, not not really that not really that useful because languages languages have always borrowed from each other. That's just what people exactly. people do because it's very pragmatic and normal. Yeah, absolutely. And um, something you touched upon earlier there already before I asked you, we asked you specifically about your PhD and all that, but um, something I, I thought was interesting as well as um, about the um, child language acquisition and, um, you know, that people are afraid often uh, if they learn two languages, maybe they don't learn the one language properly. You'd think that's kind of outdated, but at the same time, I know so many examples of like friends of mine as well who have parents from two language backgrounds, but where then they got scared that maybe they don't learn the language where they live properly. So then they gave up the other language or just, you know, used it sporadically. So, you know, they technically could have grown up in a bilingual household. They didn't fully grow up bilingual. So one of my best friends, you know, she had, she improved like, um, like her mom is from Guatemala and her dad is German and she grew up with German as her native language. And she also knew and understood Spanish, but not to the same degree by far. And she caught up on it later in life now, but um, it was also out of a fear that uh, maybe she wouldn't learn uh, German properly enough then to, you know, that she might fall behind in school because of that. And uh, she's not the only one. I, I know a lot of people like that. Um, and yeah, we, we technically know that this is outdated, but, but, even now, like my, my daughter, you know, um, like my, my husband is Irish and, um, you know, speaks English. Uh, I speak German. And even there, people are like, oh, are you sure she's going to be okay if you both speak <laughs> language? Like, she's going to be fine, you know. But you know, people are still worried about this kind of stuff, that you don't learn the language properly. It is one of the biggest myths, I think, that goes around about bilingual children, that they will be confused um, if they hear more than one language. And it's kind of... Um, it's kind of come from some bad science, basically. So there were some studies almost probably a hundred years ago now, like the 1920s, people were getting really interested in bilingualism and, you know, um, doing studies where they measured how many words the children had. And I think one of the studies they took uh, Spanish English bilinguals and they measured how many English words the children had. And they concluded that the bilingual children 
had half the number of words, uh, but they had completely ignored the fact that they also knew some Spanish words, okay? <laughs> so this, unfortunately, you know, even though the science was terrible, the kind of the results of that kind of carried on going round and round. And, and what I'm learning from getting more into science is that it's very difficult to get the right messages out, but it seems to be very easy to get the wrong messages out and then quite difficult to put them back in their yes. box. Because, you know, because a catchy story or a sensational headline or something that will catch people's attention. And even a hundred years later, people might still be quoting it. But essentially, it's wrong to think that children will be confused. And actually, that comes from a monolingual perspective, because, you know, children who grow up with two languages, they're not confused. That's just normal for their you know, their, their environment. OK. Um, and, you know, all, all the first language acquisition research shows that children are not confused and they even from before birth they're beginning to categorize the fact that there are two languages uh, in their environment crazy. At, at birth like babies who are hours old have shown um you know ability to kind of distinguish between two languages that they know say like english and tagalog they can separate the sounds they're not confused with them and they can show a preference for both so they show that they recognize that they both they're different languages, but they also, they both matter. Whereas babies who have not heard those two languages will only recognize the English and show a preference for English, and they will not see Tagalog as a, as a you know, valid, like a linguistic sound, as opposed to just a normal noise, you know, like a bell ringing or something like that. So, right. so, so, so okay. yeah, so they don't kind of categorize that as a, oh, this is something I need to pay attention to because this signifies language. Whereas bilingual babies, they already know that these 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 sounds are in their in experience, and they're going to need to know them because their caregivers know them. And you know, this is incredible, right? So, like from uh, that is incredible. Yeah, it's like, so from from before birth, you know, babies are, are gearing up to absorb and and to I've used the word absorb, which I you know I will come back to in a minute because it's really misleading. Actually, babies aren't just absorbing; they're not sponges; they're like really active. <laughs> incredible scientists you know like doing kind of tests all the time like is this useful is this not useful do I need to know this you know um it's a really active process learning a language and then you kind of gradually start to specialize by the time you're like 10 to 12 months old if you are exposed to two language systems like two sound systems you kind of keep the channels open if you like to hear and to make the difference between the two languages, even languages that are really close together. So like Spanish and Catalan, um, there are very subtle differences in the vowels. You know, Catalan has got some vowels that don't exist in Spanish and um, that are so similar that a Spanish uh, one-year-old can't hear the difference between the two Catalan vowels. But a Catalan and a Spanish Catalan baby can hear the difference uh, between these tiny, tiny differences differences in vowels so it's incredible really like it's it's like really subtle and um yeah it does it, it feels kind of like magic almost that babies can do it but it's just it's very 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 wonderful isn't it so so how is this research being conducted because it is completely fascinating and it's it is yeah. actually quite yeah it's almost like magic that that babies can do this at, at that early age but like how is the research actually con being conducted you know like how do we know yeah. that the spanish baby can't differentiate but the catalan baby catalan spanish baby could so obviously you can't ask um a four-month-old baby <laughs> <laughs> it'll answer back in portuguese <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
So the scientists, the linguists, um, have got these incredible techniques. So there's one called a high amplitude sucking technique. So HAS has, and it's like a dummy and it's got sensors in the dummy and baby, baby show a preference by sucking harder on the dummy. So like, they're like, Oh, I know this language. I like this. I'm going to keep sucking. Yeah, they get excited um, and so, so yeah. yeah. And, and what they do is they habituate the baby to one of the languages so say if it was English and um, Tagalog, you would keep playing them sounds which are in English. And then the baby obviously gets used to it. So they suck less and less um, like it's new and exciting. And then they will introduce the next language. And if a baby notices the difference, they'll start sucking harder on the dummy again. OK, because they've noticed the change. Whereas the baby who doesn't notice the change is still bored essentially. So they keep the, the sucking doesn't increase. Does that make sense? So like, mm. if you notice that this new sound indicates a new thing, you will go, Oh, that's interesting. And you'll suck harder on the dummy. Whereas if you don't notice the difference, because you know, you are not exposed to it, for example, and it's not something that you, you recognize as a new sound system, um, then you don't suck so hard. And then older babies, they do a looking um, test as well. So they can play, you know, on different computer screens. Um, and so a baby will look over in one direction and then they get used to looking in that direction for a certain association with a word or with a set of sounds. And then if the sound changes, they might look in the other direction. If they don't notice a, if they don't notice a change, then, you know, they, they continue to look in the same direction. So it's, all, it's incredibly clever. And there's these incredible labs. That is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really fascinating. And it, it is crazy to, to, to see, like, so my daughter is only six months old now. And uh, I can also already, I mean, I'm not doing any tests with her, but I can, I, <laughs> to, uh, you know, I, for example, ask her, oh, are you hungry? You know, you want to eat something? And then I can see her getting excited, you know, like even if we're nowhere near where the bottles are or whatever food, you know, and she's like getting excited like this every time when I ask her. And then when um, I speak to her in German, of course, and when my husband does the same thing also, but in, in English, she also has this reaction and again, we're not like near the food so that you'd think, okay, it's just because she's seeing the food, she's getting excited. But, and this is fairly recent, but I was surprised to see that she's already able to pick up on these small things now. Not not for many things or anything, but uh, I can, you know, ask her like, oh, Papa's coming home. and The basics. Like, oh, she knows the word Papa now, you know, and it's like dad. So he's coming home. And um, it's it's really cool to see that she's she's so young. But she can, I can tell she's starting to recognize things like this already now. Yeah, absolutely. So babies, they, they first of all, they develop their, we call it receptive vocabulary. So it's like the language that they understand. So their comprehensive vocabulary. And then obviously later, then they start producing the words. But before, you, you know, that's the kind of, it feels like the tip of the iceberg. You know, by the time babies start speaking and, you know, consistently speaking it's sort of around age two but they've done an awful lot of work before then haven't they before they actually say papa and they mean papa they don't just make the sound without associating it with papa um so by the time babies actually meaningfully produce a word they've done a lot of work <laughs> and it you know can go unnoticed i always think it's really fascinating to compare talking with walking so you know obviously your baby will be pushing up and starting to do tummy rolls and you know um, holding her neck up and getting stronger and then maybe start to crawl 
and it's really visible isn't it like you can see all the different stages and as a parent I feel like we can support that really easily because it's there to see um, and then when they get a bit older you can hold their you know you can hold your fingers out and help them walk and you know it's very easy to scaffold that as a parent and to help them walk and give them a little trolley and then they can push the trolley along but with talking it's like if you don't know what's happening you might not think anything is happening until they say papa <laughs> um very true you know and it's suddenly like boom there it is language bang it's just appeared Whereas actually, language is exactly the same as walking, and it comes in all these tiny, tiny, tiny incremental stages. And it involves not one skill, but like a whole kind of network of skills that the baby develops at different times and at different rates. And obviously, every baby is different, like every person is different. They have, you know, they do things in different stages, uh, like roughly along the same track, but, you know, obviously they've got individual differences. So it's, it's amazing. So when they say their first thing, um, they've already learned how to understand a lot of words before that. So I think by six six to eight months, they might even be coming up to sort of 50 words that they understand already. Their glossary is expanding. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you could it's really tell cool. for us. I remember also already a few months ago, she started doing like uh, back and forth with us, like with um, kind of blowing air out her lips, like, um, I don't know, like a brrr, like that. And making different yeah. sounds and we would do them back and forth with her and she was like responding to our sounds and we had like little conversations that way with her which was really cool and yeah picking up on your I loved your comparison with the talking and walking because this is again brings me back to my university days uh, we watched a video there and I think it was in relation to you know Noam Chomsky's theory of universal grammar that grammar like an understanding of grammar is inborn and they tested it in comparison also with babies that uh, like stepping is inborn, but you need to learn the balance. And so with, they compared it with language. I don't know the exact comparison anymore, but somehow that like the basic understanding of grammar is inborn. But then, of course, you have to learn the specifics of your language and the sounds and everything. There's a lot to learn. But um, I thought there was a really nice uh, comparison there as well. I think it's quite interesting because parents I've spoken to have quite often felt a bit disempowered like they don't know how to help their baby learn how to speak and it's so funny because what you just said about your family kind of doing the blowing bubbles and it's a conversation I mean obviously your baby's not saying hey mum let's blow bubbles <laughs> but she's instigated a conversation with you and you have responded and like that is the vital thing is that babies they need that conversational interaction and it's a very social thing um, she's eliciting care from you from the from birth right babies you know they've got big eyes and they're all gorgeous and probably they look a bit like their father as well so keeping the dad in the loop <laughs> and creating <laughs> creating a bond you know it's, it's all it's all very kind of um you know it's all very evolutionarily sort of there to create care and nurture isn't it you know and then those first sounds and all of that it's like a back and forth conversation even even when they are just hours old, it's incredible. And then by the time they're six months old, they're quite an expert at getting you to respond. <laughs> um, and there's lots of memes I've seen, you know, about the baby in the house who is the boss. <laughs> even when they're small, they can make their parents drop everything and come, come running to do what they need right now. Um, but conversationally, it's really fun. It's really interesting. And they start to learn um, how to play peepo and stuff like that, you know, like if you hide behind your hands and jump out. And then there's all the fits of giggles and that kind of thing is really, 
you know, gets a response from the parents and then the baby loves that. So they say, oh, great, let's do more of that. And then it kind of keeps going. And Such attention seekers. Right, it's so much fun though. Like, <laughs> this is exactly what we're doing most of our days here now. <laughs> As, you know. Yeah. But so I have a question. I'm not sure if there's like a like a specific answer or any research on it, but I actually watched a YouTube video the other day, which we all know this is highly scientific, surely, and, and very well researched. Um, but somebody was saying that um, it's better if you like talk to your baby like a proper human being instead of doing like all the goo goo gaga stuff, which, you know, you can still do and also like the blowing bubbles because of course it's fun and it, it makes baby giggle and you have a lot of fun with it. But then generally speaking, like you should just talk to the baby like you talk to a person is is there anything on that i don't know yeah so um if you look at how parents talk to their babies they quite often elongate their sounds so like hello and you know you've got these kind of like really sing song very kind of cadenced melodies if you like so um and that, that seems to be like quite a natural instinct i know i certainly found myself doing it with my children i was like oh where did this come from you know it just sort of comes out so um we do we do infant directed speech as I, I think it's quite a natural thing that parents do and actually from what I understand from my reading is that babies can then learn because if you think about speech okay it hasn't got any gaps between words you know it's called the speech stream because you can't tell where one word ends and one word begins like if you know we were all transported now into a into a country with a language we didn't know we wouldn't know where the beginning and ends of words were. Right, yeah, it's yeah. It's just one long, mm. constant kind of outpouring, and it's called Barrage, the speech. Yeah. yeah, so babies, they can be helped by this kind of sing-songy, up-and-down, cadenced sort of um, style, if you like, of talking, because it helps them to work out, and segment is the technical term, helps them segment the speech stream and begin to work out oh, where the beginnings and ends of words are. So actually, if you just talk in your normal adult um, way to children, that really helps them because that's what they've got to learn when they're older, right? They've got to learn how to break language down. But it's, it's also, it's not at all harmful, I don't think, to say that a banana is a nana and instead of something else. Um, so, and I think, I think parents would just naturally do a bit of a mixture. I think if you only, you know, I, I don't know any studies where someone has only spoken to their child in, um, I'm going to call it baby language, but that's not the right kind of uh, technical term, but, you know, with words which are just made up for children, like infantilized language or something. Um, I've not seen any studies of that. But I think if we just, you have a smattering, like you might say, oh, look, there's the Nina for the fire engine or something. That's just normal. And I think, you know, kind of onomatopoeic as well. So like you, you're, I think parents instinctively, whether they know it or not, are trying to make the form and the meaning link together for the children. So they so they start to associate things together. So, but actually, babies they're completely brilliant at picking up um, the rhythm and the melody, if you like, of, of how adults talk. Even when That's they're so crying, cool. okay, babies reflect back the patterns of yeah. adult speech. So there's this really cool research in Würzburg in Germany, um, um, Kathleen Wermke, and she's got a melody theory about crying. So babies who are German, uh, well, exposed to German, they cry with a falling melody. Like in, in German, they, the, the sound goes down, whereas it goes up and it has a rising intonation in French and I think in English as well. And babies cry. Through. Get out. Yeah, so, so babies who are exposed to two languages, they actually have two different um, melodic kind of um, cries 
So it's incredible. Like even crying. That is a lot. That is a lot. <laughs> that is super cool. But so, so Kate, I want to piggyback onto something that you said earlier, saying that the babies don't just absorb stuff. And I think, you know, the word sponge, language sponge gets kind of thrown around a lot. And I'm, I'm sure you have opinions. Like little supercomputers. <laughs> <laughs> it's just something that people say, like it's intuitive to think that babies are sponges, isn't it? Because, you know, they're just a little bundle of, of you know, babiness, you know, and they, you know, one day they suddenly start speaking and people think, wow, they've just absorbed so much language in the last, you know, six to eight months or a year, whatever. So it's like it's received wisdom, but it's actually a bit problematic to think of babies as sponges. So for all the reasons I've already said, babies are really active in the process. Like they are not just absorbing, they are in fact kind of doing, you know, um, statistical analyses all the time, <laughs> you know, and Yeah, you know, if like by the time they're sort of 12 months old, if they don't hear um, Tagalog, they're going to start to be less receptive to those sounds. And if you look at like Mandarin babies uh, um, or Japanese is a great example, you know, L and R is, in Japanese is, is not a different sound. It's actually part of the same, you know, sound uh, block. But in English, it's very different. You have L and R, L and R is distinguishably two different sounds and we use them differently. But a baby who's exposed to English and Japanese, they maintain those two sound systems. Whereas an adult Japanese speaker finds it very difficult to hear the difference because they're not, they're not, they're not distinguishable in Japanese as two different sounds. Anyway, so if you think of a baby as a sponge, you're kind of missing their very active role that they, you know, they're actively doing stuff all the time. They're not just absorbing language. Um, it is actually something that that is active. It's a process. And it's very dynamic, and also it it can lead to problems in terms of um, you know giving the right support to children. If you if you think that they're just like a sponge and they're not doing anything, you might be missing some of the signs where they might need help. Or you know, if you quite often like it's popular now, isn't it, to put young children and increasingly younger children into like sort of bilingual daycare or um, you know, say, oh, great, just pop the baby in a, in a French nursery and bingo, they'll learn French, you know, no problem, they're a sponge. Whereas actually babies are humans and they all have different needs and they may find that terrifying to be plonked into a nursery where they don't speak the language. They might, they, you know, they may actively dislike it. You know, it's not just that all babies are the same and that they're just sponges. You've got to take an individual you know, um, personality, they may have different aptitudes, they may have different attitudes as well. So I think the idea of sponge is, is just misleading. And, um, you know, there's a group of us who are trying to kind of campaign against using the word sponge, because it's, it's, it's not, it's not very helpful, I think, mm. um, in terms of supporting children as they learn. And I remember as well, again, from, from college, from that, um, when I was looking, when we were taught about child language acquisition, the different theories out there, that one of the points uh, one of the teachers was making also is that sometimes when, um, you, you, that in the beginning, maybe children are mimicking a bit more and then they, you know, that changes again. And I forgot all the different stages and the names, but I remember distinctively that in the beginning, then sometimes maybe uh, a child says something correctly, like I went, And then they learn the the rule that, uh, you know, you have like an the ED ending for past tense. And then they play around with that rule. And then they start to make, you know, 
mistakes and putting them in air quotes here um, because they're trying out this rule. So they might say I goed or I wented and then, you know, they, but it's not actually a sign of a mistake so much as it's a sign that they're developing and they're, like you said, they're actively trying to figure out this language and they have a new rule. So they're trying to apply it to everything and then they kind of see what sticks and they come back and it's a, it's a positive development, even though it sounds to the adults as something wrong first. Exactly. It sounds like a backward step, doesn't it? So what happens is you've got it's a, U a U shaped curve. It's really typical development. A baby will kind of learn chunks of language that are unanalyzed. So they don't know about grammatical, morphological endings and that kind of thing. They kind of hear went and they may use went early. You know, that might be one of the things like, oh, daddy went or something, you know. And then as they get a bit more kind of awareness of like morphological endings, so ED or S, that in English, for example, there, there's not that many morphological endings. We have S on plurals and we have S on third person and, you know, we have ED on past tenses. So there's not that many to learn. And they may well then start overgeneralizing and say, I wented to the park because they say I played and they hear ED. And it's more common to have verbs that end in ED than it is to have irregular verbs. So, it, you know, they, they, they will see that. And because they're doing this sort of statistical analysis of, of frequency and that sort of thing, there's loads of really cool science looking into this. Um, children can then overgeneralize and it looks like they've gone backwards, but they haven't. They've actually just started to acquire morphological awareness and then gradually it evens out. And they, you know, maybe by the time they're three, four, they'll, easily have figured out that you know irregulars don't take the ed ending and that regulars do not obviously they haven't overtly said that to themselves they don't know irregular and regular sure but they understand it yeah, on that but, level. you know usage like usage a, wise yeah. they kind of fit more what we would expect from an adult's language um and it's also it's systematic it's not yeah. uh, it's not just random error it is actually systematic and i think if you if you look at child's uh, children's errors um, if they're like random and unsystematic, that's maybe more of a warning sign than if it's systematic and following a pattern. It's just part of the process. It will come out in the wash <laughs> eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and um, something, and I don't know if you can um, verify that or if you have, there's things you know about this. Um, I'm pretty sure I remember something else where we were taught that uh, maybe it's just in some cases or not always that it's sometimes, uh, at least for the learning development, that uh, you pretty much almost can't like just correct a child. Like there was, I remember a specific uh, scenario that was transcribed a conversation between a dad and a, and a child. If, I don't know the age of the child anymore, but the child said something wrong. Like it, it, like, it was like at dinner time and he wanted the spoon and it, it said something like, me one spoon or something. I don't remember the, the sentence, but it was wrong like that. It's, a, it's a really famous, yeah? it's a really famous okay. conversation. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And then the dad just kept saying like, can you not say like, I want the spoon and it kept going back and forth. And eventually the child was frustrated and it just said, I want the spoon. And then it made the dad happy and he was great. Yeah. He's like, so <laughs> me one spoon. It went back to his original request of like, can I please have the damn spoon now? <laughs> the way I asked initially. <laughs> so it just said the right thing then to make the dad happy. But it went back to like, well, this is what I want. And this is how I'm saying that. <laughs> you know, so That tracks with a lot of children that I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really, really interesting, isn't it? But there, there is a kind of a 
standard like path that you walk along you go along to learn language and you can't really rush the stages you can't kind of skip you know in, in first language and um if i'm remembering correctly second language people have scientists have tried to see can you jump a stage like can you can you maybe speed up the second language acquisition process, for example? Because that would be really useful, wouldn't it? Like if we could say, we can take out these bits where you are dangling in the abyss of yeah. verbs and we can, <laughs> we can just speed you up and you can learn Arabic in six months, no problem. That would be fantastic and it would also be very marketable. However, it's really difficult to speed up. Um, and it, and so a lot of the studies I've read are people learning English because that's a really common second language. So it's in a lot of this, a lot of the science. Um, and, and people from all different backgrounds, from all different ages, they go along the same kind of path of making the same sort of errors in the same sort of order. And it's difficult to kind of speed those up. So and, and first language, like you were saying about the child conversation with a spoon, me want spoon. The child knew what they were saying. That's their developmental readiness. That's what they were saying. And the dad's saying, oh, no, come on, you know, tell me I want the spoon or, you know, please, could you pass me the spoon? The child could maybe repeat that. Like I was saying, they might have that ability to repeat it. Um, they, they're brilliant at fast mapping. It's called where they can learn a new word. Like my tutor gave us the example of portcullis. You know, you're in a castle, you see the gate and you say, oh, look, there's a portcullis. And they can start using the word straight away. Um, but they haven't really got that deep understanding of it because it takes several you know, even like 10, 11 um, exposures to a word to really get it in different contexts. And, you know, it, it's it's a kind of a 360 thing, learning a word. It's not just like see it, repeat it, and then you've got it, you know. that um, it's, it's a bit more in-depth than that, isn't it? But you could, you could get a child to repeat something, but that doesn't mean that they've then brought it into their deeply, you know, kind of uh, rooted understanding and noticed it and been aware of it and, and got it in, in 360 you know that will still take time and you can't really trick it it just has to go along yeah and that kind of is, is a, just a great example of how they're not just uh, you know sponges who or like little parrots who repeat but that mm. there is an active process like you said that they're deciphering this and they're working on it <laughs> so. yeah they're not they're not parrots exactly. i just had to, to yeah. giggle to myself because when you were saying you know when if somebody learns arabic usually you find that a lot of people make the say the same sort of mistakes as they're learning the language and the same happened to me when i was doing my italian class and i kept making the same mistake and i'm like i don't know why i always say it like that i know it's wrong but i always say it like that and my italian teacher just goes like you're german you all say it like that <laughs> and i'm like oh okay so it seems it's like one of those things but I had to laugh so that tracks <laughs> but it's true uh, this is something also that it, well, at least in second language learning and I don't have a lot of stats on that just pure anecdotal experience but you do notice it after a while like Germans make the same these and these same mistakes in English oh, Spanish make these sure. and these yeah, mistakes yeah, 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 in yeah. English and the French do these and there's a you, you just if you spend a lot of time with people from the same culture after a while you realize so we all tend to make the same mistakes like if you're German or English or whatever you know in, in your languages so there must be something there as well that will maybe I assume relating back to our own language that tricks us up then yeah trips us up which for interpreting is always quite quite nice if you're interpreting someone German speaking English because you immediately understand the mistake they made what they meant to say and how to say it correctly and so it makes your job as a German 
interpreter much easier, whereas all the other booths will struggle because for them it's kind of like they have to decipher that on top of like the accent, on top of the foreign language, on top of the content. They have to kind of like break down the mistake that the guy or the the lady has made and how that could actually translate. So yeah, those things definitely it's it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you're interested, you can look into cross linguistic influences because that's really that's really really interesting. Um, but actually, like if somebody's learning English, I think from any different language background, there are some general kind of typical errors that they'll make. Like you know, everybody kind of does the negation by putting not go. You know, they'll put the not in front of the verb first, and then they'll gradually start to kind of analyze it properly and say you know put it in the right place. Um, but um, and looking again at bilingual children who are learning French and English, you've got children who are learning negation in French and also in English, and they will learn at the same speed as their French contemporaries. So in French, you learn negation just a little bit earlier than English. And in English, it's by the time you're about three that you start to get it right. And they, so a French and English bilingual child will actually learn French negation at the same speed as French children and English negation at the same speed as English children. Wow, that's so um, cool. And, and it's really cool. Even if they've already learned the French way of doing it, it doesn't sort of um, speed up the English way of doing it very much. From, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's really, it's really cool. But I, I, um, I would recommend looking up about cross-linguistic influence because that's a really hot topic in language acquisition. It's really interesting. Ooh, yeah, it's going on my list yeah. for sure. Um, yeah, actually, and, and something else, um, I remember also, I think it's, uh, there were also studies done and there were, I think of the nicest kind, but that kind of show that it's also pretty much impossible, uh, to keep a child from learning a language or a way of communicating so that there's always a way that us humans, so we find a way to communicate and make something into a language, you know, when you have like this, I don't want to go off topic too much, but just to, uh, you know, like, for example, children who turn a pigeon into a Creole or, you know, or just uh, if they're very like, I don't know, confined and are not in a lot of touch with people that they still manage to learn a fully flex language later or develop one then if there's none fully available they, they make it into one and I think that is so cool as well that for us humans it's just basically impossible not to communicate well I mean I mean the studies that have ex sort of come into existence of children who've been deliberately deprived of language like there's um, a famous case of Jeannie I don't know if you've heard of her she was yeah I think there was a horrible case of really horrible really tragic case of a girl who was um kept in the basement and you know nobody was allowed to talk to her and I think she was about 13 when she was sort of finally kind of released and then um you know people tried to teach her how to speak but you know we you can't assume that she was too old to learn how to speak because we don't know what kind of you know other factors were influencing her language and obviously she'd had a terrible case history of abuse so you know you can't you can't generalize from the genie case but um it it just you know that that's really really sad uh, but you've got other examples like um the Nicaraguan um orphanage where you've got children who are deaf and they hadn't been exposed to sign language but they actually kind of created their own sign language in their community and then the second generation of kids coming in they turned that into a fully flex language um, and and like you, you really can't stop children, I think, communicating if they're in the right conditions. And compared to 
compared to Jeannie, you know, there's, um, I remember in the 90s, the Rom- do you remember the Romanian orphans who, um, it was sort of big, big famous case of children who had been neglected and just left in cots and not mm-hmm. really exposed to language. And actually, because they had each other, um, and I don't know enough about this to talk about it properly scientifically, but because they had each other, they actually did communicate better than if they were been um, completely isolated. So, yeah, yeah, and um, and so first of all, I think for the comment about the the deaf children, um, I just recently did a study on um, American Sign Language interpreting and uh, spoke to some. Well, I communicated with some deaf people through the help of uh, interpreters as well. And uh, they were saying saying to me as well that it's not too uncommon, actually, that uh, a lot of deaf children don't grow up with proper sign language education. And then if they're in remote places, they kind of make up their own system a little bit. Um, So I think that's in that community, not even that uncommon even today um, and even in developed nations as well. Um, and then the other thing, what you mentioned with then that the children born into that situation, they make it into a fully flexed language that is also like in the similar to the case where um, in spoken languages as well, right? When you have a, a pigeon first uh, language first, that's very rudimentary. But then if a child is born in that context, they make it into a full language. So I, I think that's also fascinating that they become like the language machine then and they make it into a real language. Do you know the example of the the gumboot language as well, where um, during apartheid, the you know the I think it was the miners were forbidden from speaking, but they you know created a kind of signalling rhythmical system by you know stamping and tapping and you know created basically a language through their boots. And wow, you know you can't you can't stop people from communicating with each other. You know. Life finds a way. Yeah. It's just what humans do. Humans talk. <laughs> yeah, we're talking. Somehow. They, Very yeah. true. And speaking <laughs> of talking, Kate, you don't only do the PhD, you don't only have the Babel Kids, you also have a podcast, right? I think you mentioned it before. So what is that about? Um, so it's called The Language Revolution. Um, and the subtitle is Talking About Talking, um, which, <laughs> as you can guess, I'm really passionate about. It kind of grew out of all the questions that I have about language and how humans do it. And um, through running Babel Babies for 10 years, I met lots of adults who, you know, we all had the same questions, but we didn't know where to find the answers. So um, I thought I would use some of my time, you know, to get in touch with experts who could shed light on it. So the, um, I've talked to neuroscientists, so um, Thomas Back, who's a neuroscientist at Edinburgh, um, about you know, where does language go in your brain? That's a, that's a question that I find really interesting. You know, are you just, do we have like little compartments in there? At, you know, at the time I made the podcast, I knew absolutely nothing about how our brains process language. That was really, really interesting. Um, and the answer is no, we do not have a chest of drawers in our brain. Um, it's more like a network and it's increasing. Every time you learn new stuff, you just add more to this network. It's absolutely brilliant. So it's kind of almost an infinite amount of space for language. And then um, I've talked to David Crystal, you know, Professor Crystal, who is obviously the godfather of linguistics and absolutely wonderful. And lots of different guests about language acquisition and uh, bilingualism. And in fact, today I released an episode with a historian called John Gallagher, who I mentioned. And that's looking at language in Elizabethan England. Um, and where, you know, did people learn how to order two beers in 1570 <laughs> when they were learning French? Um, so, yeah, I just find the whole topic really, really interesting. So the podcast has been a real chance to 
kind of scratch a few of those itches and talk to people who are kind of um, deeply interesting people. Um, I've been very lucky. It's really interesting. But it's just it's just sort of something I'm doing on the side. Um, just to keep yourself busy. My work. <laughs> yeah. Just because I think if I have a question, I like to find out the answer. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. You're you're doing a lot, it seems, right? And then on top of everything else, you're doing the PhD. I'm about to start, hopefully. You're Alex. about to start the PhD. Yeah. So That's I'm, right. I'm currently doing my master's here. Um, and I've got a place at Oxford to do a PhD, which I'm really excited about. It's about mm. um, singing. So this is, um, it's sort of grown out of my work with Babel Babies because um, it was instinctive to me as a new parent to sing to my baby. And in fact, I remember sort of walking up and down in the middle of the night singing songs I hadn't heard since I was a child and they all just came out. You know, I needed to get this baby to sleep. And suddenly I could sing all these songs that I just didn't know I knew. Um, they were completely buried. And then Babel Babies, I have taught, um, you know, a few thousand families now, um, songs in different languages. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, I'm terrible at learning languages. I'm awful at French, but I remember Frère Jacques. <laughs> and they don't know why. Oh, yeah, that's right. And it's become a bit of a thing that everybody knows Frère Jacques, even if they haven't heard it since they were six. And, and then having done Babel Babies for 10 years now, I've seen people um, come with their children when they're really, really young. And then the children go to school and the parents then come back with the second or third child. And they say, oh, I haven't done this for years. But suddenly, after one session, they remember all the words of all of the songs. And they're always absolutely amazed how much they can remember. So I'm hoping, Alex and Sarah, in the PhD, to look at exactly what is it that songs do? Um, how do they help us learn language? Or is it, you know, is it something to do with helping us learn the words or helping us remember the words for longer? Um, and I, I've got a hunch, you know, anecdotally, I think there's something going on with our long-term memory. Um, and music seems to be a really, really powerful tool. If you think back to how ballads got um, transmitted around Europe and, you know, ballads are always really, really musical, aren't they? And you've got lots of rhyming and the rhythm is very regular and you've got a meter that is very memorable as well. So, you know, there's some, something powerful happening there, isn't there? Do you think it's maybe because there's, you know, more than one thing happening because it's connecting to different parts of the brain um, that that's forming a stronger bond or something like that? It's like, uh, I know, like, for example, in some of the baby books right now, they're also encouraging parents, like I'm also singing to my baby, but uh, in like now at a, uh, and it also came natural, but uh, now it's also saying in some of the books you should uh, sing and ideally you should also uh, involve movement and so that they have all these different things going on and form a connection to to that apparently it's supposed to um, encourage the speech development but also just in general all of their all of their development so because I, I assume it's a touching on different areas in the brain maybe as well or something like that I don't know yeah so I think um, from my understanding at the moment music and language they kind of you know if you look at a scan of the brain as you're doing you know language or music it lights up the same sort of areas so and it's quite a it's quite a holistic thing you know you're giving your whole brain a workout so the podcast guest I mentioned Dr Thomas Back he has this lovely analogy that if you go to the gym um, and you do lots of bicep curls you know that is like you doing Sudoku puzzles okay so you're practicing and you're giving your brain some exercise and you are you're doing lots and lots of bicep curls 
However, if you do something to, something with language or music, it's like going to the gym and using all of the machines, basically. So um, there's something kind of a bit more powerful happening and a bit more all-round exercise for your brain. But I think with the songs, um, there's something to do. I, I don't know yet because I haven't got I haven't got deep enough into it. But there's something definitely happening with long-term memory. I think you know if you um, there's some great research from California. I think. Um, Ruben is the researcher. If you play somebody a tune that they know really well, like um, a pop song, you know, okay, so you're playing their favorite song and you stop the music and then you start it again 10 seconds later, they have actually continued the song to exactly the same beat. And, you know, when the music starts, their brain is exactly in time. Like we've just got this incredible memory for, for the rhythm of it. So I think there's something very powerful happening with the rhythm and um i know from teaching babel babies like i teach row the boat do you know the song um we do it we do it in norwegian and norwegian <laughs> <laughs> of course and, of course yeah and norwegian and english or oh, and german as well obviously the germanic languages it's quite similar um and people they don't know the words yet like they can't actually say the words but they know the rhythm and then because they know that they've got these little slots that the words will go in they, they often describe to me that it is easier to learn it because they already know the rhythm and the tune and everything. And, and then it's like the words are like the last bit that goes in, like those jigsaw puzzles where you've got wood, wooden holes and then you put the little pieces in, but you've actually created. That even makes sense monolingually as well, right? You often go, oh, what was the song again? It goes like, mm, you know, I don't know. You just kind of, you start humming the melody and then slowly the words come back to you. And, you know, because... I don't know, the melody just sticks a little easier, right? Uh, yes. Longer. And then you fill the slots slowly, like you said, with the with the words coming back afterwards as well. There's a the song stuck in my head phenomenon. That's another thing that I'm looking into in the research. Um, and yeah, it does seem to be something, there's uh, you know little pockets of research happening all around the world. So I'm hoping, so in the masters that I'm doing at the moment, um, obviously I'm coming from a language education perspective. So um, it's really interesting that teachers use songs a lot, but there's not an awful lot of research looking at why songs are useful. Um, we just sort of intuitively think that they are useful and like parents just kind of do it and teachers just kind of do it. But if you wanted to look at exactly why are songs useful, it is very difficult to find papers that have got empirical evidence, by which I mean we've tested songs against other things like doing a story um, and, and you've actually controlled for different conditions and, you know, different participants, variables, etc. And, you know, could you empirically say that songs do something and here's the evidence? I don't know that you can at the moment. So, you know, I'm trying to kind of pull together some um, at the moment. It's like looking at why teachers use songs. What do we believe about songs and some of that intuition sort of like um, delving down into teacher beliefs and how we use them and why we use them. And then I'd love to build on that in the PhD and look at, you know, exactly what is it that we think songs do? What does the existing research literature show? Um, and then, you know, try and build up an empirical study that we actually isolate songs as a variable and we try and teach some words. And then we look at, you know, does the, does the language stick around for longer if you've done it through songs? That's one, one thing that might come out of the PhD. That's really cool. I can't wait to see the results of that. I'm wondering, do you, do you think like the, and this is obviously totally just, uh, you know, I don't know, a thought, um, do you know, the element of just fun plays a role also? Yeah. Because, you know, in a 
it can be boring otherwise go like oh, i have to memorize this and whereas if you know singing a song is fun where uh, i don't know people also love to play games you know that kind of way exactly exactly so you've got all those affective variables as well like the emotional side of the emotional side of it um and if just from looking at the results that i've got in so far teachers quite often say songs are just pure joy they change the atmosphere in the classroom you know if um students are feeling a bit fed up by the afternoon you know we do some singing and then we all you know get back in the mood for some more learning and you know so there's lot there's lots of reasons why it might not be anything to do with language acquisition exactly and obviously that remains to be seen but it could be that songs just create the brilliant learning conditions that you need to you know allow learning to happen um, because everybody's in the right frame of mind for it so that it could well be I find it very interesting because I remember when I was growing up and I was li started listening to a lot of English songs, you know, obviously it's kind of cool once you realize that you can figure out what the actual lyrics mean and that the song actually has proper meaning in another language. But then sometimes, obviously, you stumble over words which you don't know what they are. And so you look them up. And I actually, to this very day, like, when, if I use certain words or certain phrases in interpreting like it always brings back to mind that one particular song where I actually had to look it up or learn that from and yeah I completely agree with that because it's kind of like also well, in my case I feel like it's also kind of like that that achievement you know like it's like a little victory because I've figured out what it means and then I added like that last little puzzle piece to it and then it all came together and started making sense and yeah I feel like with the songs it's 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 a cool thing. You created a memory around it too, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And those are the words that I'll never forget. Or, you know, like those phrases that I love to use just because, I don't know, they have like some... Not, not, that, not that they have like a special meaning to me, but like they... I didn't just learn them from a book. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you might have created like a double-edged route back into those words as well because you remember, you know, you remember the song, but you also remember the process of, of how you got there um, right. and how you learn. You've just got more connections. But yeah, you know, how uh, songs also bring, bring you back in general, you know, like you hear a song and suddenly you're a teenager again in your head or something or a little child or something. So they are obviously very closely connected to, like you said, Kate, as well, to our emotional side and, uh, you know, the, all sorts of like memories. So I don't know if they form a stronger bond maybe in that sense for us also. Also, you might just repeat it involuntarily. Mm. Okay. So, yeah, um, you know, you're not deliberately trying, you're not deliberately revising your homework, but if you've learned something through a tune and you get it stuck in your head, you're kind of involuntarily going over that. Right. Um, so that's, yeah, that, that might be another part of the equation that, you know, could be really, you're really interesting. That, you know, <laughs> And um, to what extent do you kind of practice without even practicing, mm. you know? Yeah, that's a very good point as well. Yeah, because a lot of the a lot of the research I've read this year is all about repetition. Essentially, you know, you have to keep repeating exposure to certain, you know, new vocabulary from, you know, in different um, contexts and in different ways of looking at it for it to go in. So actually, if you just through learning a song, if you just sort of accidentally without really realizing it or making too much effort end up doing lots and lots of repetitions, it could be that that is the, the key. Um, so that's something I'd really like to get to the bottom of because it could be especially applicable for all of these early learners who are 
maybe learning English earlier and earlier around the world or in, in England where, where I am, you know, we've started introducing languages at age seven in primary school. Um, but I think, you know, we're not necessarily approaching it in um, the way that's going to have the most positive outcomes and create a nation of language lovers. And that's one of my things I would, that's the thing I would really love to do is to help change these sort of attitudes that English people can't learn languages or that we're rubbish somehow genetically just because we're English. I think that's not true. It's like a, a national definitely sort of auto-stereotype that we could definitely do with getting rid of. <laughs> yeah. But you know what's really funny? This is this is very topical and, and you know, I don't want to delve too deep into that, but I think a lot of Americans also have sort of the same perception. It, it just so happens that like Spanish kind of seeped into America very strongly over the last few decades. And I'm not saying that a lot of Americans necessarily speak um, Spanish, but then, you know, on Cinco de Mayo, when everybody kind of goes out and celebrates that culture, all of a sudden Spanish comes out of, I don't know what, what remnants of, of your brain. And all of a sudden people who you've never thought that would speak Spanish, all of a sudden without like their, a couple of really nice Spanish phrases. So I think I think there's something to it. I think there's definitely not genetic rubbish or whatever. I think it's just really, yeah, people need to, they need to know how fun it can be as well. It's not just daunting. And there's that element of just, I, I mean, I know that's lots more to it, but there's that element of getting over yourself, right? Also, we all know a lot more in the languages that we know than we can, than, than we, when we know, right? Like for me as well, I feel very oh, embarrassed to try sure. to speak French yeah. and Spanish that I used to speak well, like a long time ago. And now they've so faded that I feel like I don't know any of those words anymore. But I know when I'm confronted with someone uh, or like in a situation where I have to speak French and Spanish that I like a lot, like I know a lot more and a lot more is coming back than would come out of me now where I don't have to use it, you know. Oh, for sure. And the level of Italian I can speak after a two, cup of, two, two glasses of wine, you wouldn't believe. Just because then you're not embarrassed. There are two really cool things here. So quickly, the glass of wine thing, there is actually a study showing that you genuinely do get better after one glass of wine because you get rid of your inhibitions. And I think part, part of the kind of, you know, the Anglo fear of having a go at languages is just letting go, like, you know, getting yes. over yourself, like Sarah said, and just having a go. So that's kind of what Babel Babies is trying to do. Just like, come on, you're just singing, row the boat, you know, with, with a baby. The baby is not going to judge you. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, and it's actually fun. And then you, you get those really awesome, amazing smiles and you get that bonding experience with a baby. So you just let go of all of the inhibitions really a lot more easily. Um, and then the other thing you were saying, Sarah, um, about how you think you've forgotten your French and your Spanish and it's kind of rusty. Do you remember I was saying that you've got your receptive language and then you've got your productive language? So you've Yeah, you, know, you would understand loads and loads of yeah. There's Spanish. passive and the active side, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's exactly that's a similar. Um, well, sort of different words for the same thing, really. But you, um, you know, you get a bit of practice at it again, and then you'll find that your productive skills yeah. come up. But it doesn't ever go away. There was this amazing study I read about Korean orphans who were adopted by Dutch families. I think they were Dutch or Danish. I've forgotten off the top of my head now. But the, the children left Korea when they were six months old to one year old. So they, you know, they didn't hear Korean after that. And then they did an experiment. So when the same orphans were in their 20s, they had Korean lessons and there was a control group of people who'd never, ever heard Korean. And uh, the Korean orphans who'd not heard Korean for 25 years 
could achieve a better Korean accent and they, you know, they were basically better at learning Korean, even though they'd had like six months of six months of it when they were babies. So it, it just it. It, it's somewhere in there, right? It's yeah. Just, our, our mind is amazing. It, it is fascinating. And um, something uh, you said earlier that I don't know if this is at all appropriate to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. So, but, um, <laughs> exactly. No, because you were saying it's important also to learn it in different situations. And so I don't just have a baby. I also have a dog. Yeah. And in dog training, uh, they also teach you that it's very important to train your dog. in. I think it had at least eight different um kind of situations or settings so you know because they're saying otherwise um you have a very well-trained kitchen dog your dog always listens very well in that one setting that it knows in the kitchen because it has associated this rule with this place so for them to really learn it as a general rule you have to bring them to all these different places inside and outside the house and that's how they learn best and um yeah so that they accept it as a general rule and for me it makes sense i mean i don't want to compare <laughs> babies and people in general just to dogs but there is some overlap with this behaviorism right with the with the um you know associating something with an action or something like that and that it's the way it sticks in your brain when you know otherwise if you, you can't just associate it with the one situation you have to experience something in several situations for it to really stick right that's uh, Yeah. So I think, um, so I think generally behaviorism and language acquisition is, you know, not really seen um, to be particularly sort of empirically sort of proven at the moment. So um, you've got... So I meant the behaviorism more for the dogs with the, you know, the Pavlovian yeah. oh, thing, okay. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah, you would, I guess you would associate um, like, so I also got a puppy last year. I think it's a lockdown, a lockdown phenomenon, isn't it? To, get um, get a baby and get a puppy <laughs> but I, I already had the dog but yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um and yes if you're training your dog in different situations then yeah they're learning association but that's kind of a little bit of a different thing to learning language which is you know um not just yeah it's not just a behavioral response it is like an actual kind of cognitive um network as well yeah I didn't mean to simplify it because, of course, humans do different things with language than dogs would, but it just reminded me of it with learning in several situations for maybe that it sticks better. I'm sure the underlying process is different. <laughs> yeah, you start to see the words, don't you? In if you see them in different situations, you're look kind of looking at it in the round from different angles and, you know, you can you know, hear it in different sentence constructions or from different people as well. So, mm, yeah, that makes be, sense. Um, creating a more powerful set of connections as well. Um, so one last thing we also wanted to talk about um, here is the uh, International Day of Multilingualism. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that campaign? Uh, yeah, so this is quite exciting. Um, Thomas Back, who I did the first podcast with on the language revolution, um, we're both really passionate about talking about multilingualism. And it's funny because we come from really, really different backgrounds I am just an English person who grew up in the middle of the, the English the English countryside and everybody spoke English whereas he is from Poland with you know Polish and German and then you know he moved to England and he also speaks Spanish and so he's super multilingual um, and I'm sort of passionate about it in in one direction and he's from another direction and then with a collection of colleagues we we decided that you know there were lots of really cool initiatives and lots of grassroots things happening 
talking about how being multilingual is really, really normal. However, uh, it, there wasn't something kind of joining it all together. So what Thomas um, decided was that on the 27th of March, which is the day on the Rosetta Stone, um, you know, with the multilingual stone, um, we would do the International Day of Multilingualism. And we've got a hashtag, which is multilingual is normal. And it's basically a Twitter party that people join in and um, tweet examples of how, you know, multilingual they are. Or um, it's not just about like, you know, there's a bit of a hang up as well that multilingual means that you are fluent in several different languages, which can feel a little bit too high um, a goal. Whereas, you know, people like me, I'm not fluent in 10 languages, but I will have a go at 10, you know, 10 different languages. I can sing you songs in 10 languages. Um, oh, and one, most people. Yeah, and it's, and it's just about, you know, the kind of that open and attitude. I think in, in French, um, in European literature, actually, it's like plurilingualism is a, is a, is a uh, word that gets used a bit more as well. And it's about knowing a bit of different languages. So the idea of the International Day of Multilingualism is just to kind of get people talking about multilingualism and plurilingualism and, um, and normalising it. It's not, you're not fully bilingual, you don't have to be bilingual. Basically, it's normal to have lots of different languages in our world and in our communities. And, um, and to enjoy that as, you know, a set of skills and, a, and lots of you know, the potential connections that we could make with other people. And over the last few years, I think um, it was the third year that we've run it this year, we've reached on average like 1.5 million people um, wow. every year. So it's really exciting. Um, and yeah, it's had people from all the different continents tweeting about it. As we noted this year, not Antarctica. We need to get the penguins involved next time. <laughs> <laughs> So how does one go about establishing an international day of anything? Like, can I can I just make it up? Today is the international day of cracking my fingers. <laughs> um, I think if you want to do something official, you need to go through um, UNESCO, don't you? Or to you know, there's an application process to make it an official one. But I think if you just have enough people joining in, and um, we certainly did, we had you know a fantastic response the last few years. Um, it becomes a thing of its own. And actually, Multilingual is Normal really caught on. And I made a book called Multilingual is Normal last year. Um, and lots of the people who've been involved have contributed like a little snippet. Just um, I think it was 500 or 500 to 700 words each. So, you know, something that you can read on the loo without like trying to, you know, get too intellectual. But it's really um, interesting little insights and vignettes about people's life with languages and you know, um, and actually there are 60 different contributors and there are 60 different ways of looking at what it is to be multilingual. So I think it just shows that people all do languages in their own way and it's really cool and diverse. And that's what gets me excited about it. I, I just, if, because, you know, the hashtag is multilingual is normal. It's, I saw on Twitter the other day, and I really don't want to get too political. It, it, this can easily veer off into a wrong direction, but I read somewhere that, um, what is her name? Um, Kate Middleton, her daughter, has now learned French, I believe, in in elementary school. And then somebody on Twitter said, well, it's fantastic that we're celebrating that she's multilingual, um, but millions of other children around the world are multilingual as well anyways. It seems that it's just impressive. It's just less impressive if you're poor or not rich. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is it's a very good point. But it is a really important point. Yeah, because actually, if you think about the UK, which is my context, you know, we've got, um, well, there's a, a statistic that gets bandied around 364 
different languages in primary schools in England, but I think it's probably more like about 60 that are used often. Um, but either way, we have really, really multilingual children and families. And um, I think it's, it kind of goes a bit under, under noticed, doesn't it? That, you know, everyday multilingualism is not necessarily celebrated, whereas you get this prestige variety of multilingualism where, oh, you've learned some French or some Spanish, that's terribly nice, you know. Um, whereas if you have got other languages that are maybe not those prestige languages, there can be some snobbishness or, you know, some uh, prejudice against that. Um, and that's part of the kind of campaign as well that we're, we're hoping to normalise multilingualism in all of its forms. So it's amazing that the um, princess, Charlotte, I think is her name, has learned some, learned some French. That's really cool. I think she also had a Spanish nanny when she was really, really yes, small. That's so that's maybe right. she remembers a bit of Spanish and, and that's really wonderful. However, you know, on the flip side, it's also absolutely brilliant that, you know, you've got children who speak Urdu and um, they come into school and they also speak English. And I, I taught I taught a boy who um, I, I went and did a workshop, like a linguistics workshop with some 14, 16 year olds. And we did this really, uh, really fun puzzle, like a linguistics Olympiad type of puzzle where I challenged them to translate an unseen text in a language that they did not know into English. Um, and what I'd done, actually, funnily, was write uh, Barbar Black Sheep out in Norwegian, but made it look like an exam paper. And after after about 15 minutes, the children, <laughs> they worked out that it was Barbar Black Sheep and they worked it out through using cognates and all that kind of thing. And, and then we had this really great discussion afterwards and talked about whether they had any languages, etc. And this boy, uh, he said, oh, yeah, no, I speak Igbo at home uh, with my mum and my nan. And the other kids in his class, they were like, no way, we did not have a clue that you spoke a different language at home. And he said, oh, well, I just speak it with my mum and my nan. It doesn't really count. And of course, that exactly exemplifies the point that we're making. So like his language skills in the translation workshop, you know, that was translating and that was prestigious, etc. But actually, every single day he, you know, surfs between using English and, and Igbo at home. And that's you know, under-celebrated, but it's equally, it's just fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, that's such an excellent point to make. Yeah, because this is so, so true. And not just in the UK, of course, in so many countries, it'd be absolutely the same in Germany as well. Yeah. Yeah, I actually read this. So th this is a little bit off that point, but I, I read that in Germany. Um, I forgot where exactly in which particular state it was, but they had a relatively big Muslim population attending that particular high school, but they didn't actually have any Muslim um, classes. So they offered like Catholicism, they offered evangelical class, as you usually do in Germany. This is quite common, but they didn't have anyone teaching anything about you know, the Muslim faith. And what they actually did is they said, well, if you are Muslim, we're going to put on a Turkish class for you and you can all go to, Tur to Turkish class as like a sort of substitute for for the religious class. And I was like, how does this make any sense? But that alone shows you that a lot of people associate certain languages with with attributes that have nothing really to do with the language. You know, they might just be completely randomly connected somewhere somehow but then people kind of draw their own conclusions from that and then you know i don't know i just yeah. it's possibly a hangover isn't it from the whole nation equals language you know so the flag equals the language um and um another one of my tutors hamish is always quoting max weinreich who said that you know the difference between a language 
And a dialect is a language has got um, an army and a navy. And it's true, you know, if you've got, um, you know, if you've got political boundaries around languages, haven't you? They're artificial. They're not actually, they're not actually boundaries. You know, you don't have lines in between like where languages meet like we said at the beginning chain of dialects yeah like we said at the beginning you know languages are really fluid and dynamic and it's about what people do um it's very natural to to mix these things but i think on you know there's a lack of understanding of um what actually language is and how it's not just you know it's not just um a signifier of a nationality because you can be you know one nationality and be multilingual you can be multinational and have lots of languages it's it's a lot more dynamic than i think a lot of people think it is yeah and actually it's, it's also good to remember that uh, you know the standard in any language once also was just a dialect that was chosen to be the standard right and then obviously that was kind of kept and preserved or whatever also develops a little bit but um so that dialects are no less than the standard as well that's it exactly there's a, a really funny example of um you know english got um in, in English, it got sort of standardized and a famous milestone in that is Johnson writing the dictionary of English. And he said um, about 10 years before he, his dictionary actually came out that he was going to write down the words and the pronunciation. He was going to standardize the spelling and the pronunciation. And then in the preface to the dictionary in 1747, he said, you may as well try and lash the wind as write down English pronunciation. It was impossible <laughs> Nobody pronounced anything the same. You know, people would say greet and great, and they meant the same thing. Let them have their own pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then for like the hundred years after that, there was a, a big, you know, rush to try and standardize pronunciation. It's really interesting. But like the written standard of English comes from London Chancery English, um, like, you know, from the law courts. And, and, and actually, it, it doesn't reflect the diversity within English um, as it is you know, huge, hugely diverse. And, and I, I guess that's the same for other languages too. Like I know Italian, it's the Florentine dialect, which is Italian, but actually... Good God. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> don't even get me started. I did my, my Italian class in Florence and I was like, okay, I've got this. I'm really good at this now. And then I actually started talking to this old lady who was like a proper Florentine born and raised. And I was like, what language is this woman? <laughs> oh God, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, Kate, I actually think like we could probably talk to you for hours and hours on end because we have barely touched dialects. We have not even talked about accents. We there's there's so much to cover. But I'm afraid, looking at the time, we should probably sort of wrap this up at some point. Otherwise, you know, we we're gonna just turn this into like three or four episodes. Yeah, I could go all night because now that we've touched upon dialects as well, it opened like a whole other Pandora's box for me of things I'm interested in and yeah. that I remember and want to talk about. <laughs> exactly. So I'm on the cusp of just dragging this out for another few hours. <laughs> so. We might just have to have you back, Kate. I'm sorry. You're you're on the hook now. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be brilliant. It's been really lovely to talk to you. Thank you. It was great having you on, honestly. Thank you so much. And thank you for uh, putting up with all my uh, bits I remember from like at least 10 years ago in college. Uh, you know, so this is, uh, this is so great for me. So thank you so much. 